You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the investors agency and Debar. With over 20 years experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hey guys, and welcome to episode six of the Lazy Equity Podcast. I'm super excited to have Matt on the show today. Matt, uh, we've known each other for about 10 years now on a personal level, but also we're in a quite a similar, I wouldn't say similar industry, but we'll touch on that. So Matt, nice to, nice to welcome and nice to have you on board. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for the invitation. Excited to be here. Pleasure, mate. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your corner, a bit about what you guys are doing and I guess what, it, what, what that focuses on? So I guess at your corner, the key thing that we do is we help the emerging wealthy create success in their life. And success in someone's life is a very personal thing. And a lot of the times people don't actually know what that is because it's all around being able to set values-based goals and then building a life that you love to live. And okay. each of us have different goals, how many kids we want to have, who we want to get married to, where we want to live, yeah. um, the type of career that we're going to pursue, the sports and pastimes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we really help people identify those really core things that are valuable to them, build a plan so that they can live out that life. And we use accounting and taxation strategies and financial planning, wealth creation strategies to get the finance stuff sorted. Because if you know who you are and you know where you want to go, if you get that finance bit sorted early in your life, then you can live a you can thrive. Okay, cool. And do you have so so essentially from what I, from what I'm understanding there? Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a holistic financial financial planning and advice business. Is that correct? Yep, correct. Okay, cool. And do you have I guess a, at your corner is there a specific avatar that you guys like to deal with? Is there a specific age or, or, or demographic or whatnot that you prefer to deal with? Yeah, so we have a quite broad, when we say emerging wealthy, it's really who identifies with that um, avatar, I guess. We don't really deal with a lot of younger millennials. Being able to deliver financial advice, which is both going to be beneficial to them and then also affordable is really difficult with the current compliance structures that we have in place. The cost of advice has gone up something like 30 or 40% in the last two to three years. Wow. And also there's a huge exodus of financial advisors out of the actual industry. Why so, do you think, sorry to, sorry to sort of um, cut you off there, why, do you, why has it gone up so much in the past sort of two years? So since the Royal Commission, that was in sort of 2018, they put in a whole lot of restrictions in terms of additional compliance requirements to deal with retail um, customers. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of administration compliance that's involved there. And then since then, they've just been getting more and more and more arduous compliance requirements to be able to deliver advice. Yeah. And if... Let's just say, for example, a financial plan costs $5,500 to just put that whole plan together, deliver and and things. If a client's got $100,000, you're talking about 5.5% of their net wealth. Yeah. I, as a financial advisor, can't justify charging those kind of fees to someone because how how am I going to be able to recoup that for them? You know, they're already 5.5% behind before they even get started. Now, I'm not saying that advice is not valuable. Yeah. Um, It definitely is. And a lot of advice can be. So yeah, we've been working out a way to be able to deliver like one-to-many style of like coaching uh, and education to that younger crowd. But yeah, so that's not, not who we deal with really on a one-on-one. So we're yeah. really dealing with people in their sort of late 30s all the way through to pre-retirees. Typically our demographic is they own a business and yeah. we help them improve the profitability and reporting within those businesses and yeah. then drive those profits into a wealth creation strategy. 
Okay, cool. And and what's your specific role within within? So I'm a financial advisor. So I work as the core financial advisor in that business, and then also do some uh, business coaching with some of the business owners. Okay, cool. So that's um, that's your corner, I guess, on a professional level. What about what about personally? I know you got two sons. Is that right? Yeah. So two sons, uh, little Orlando and Stefan. So nine and seven at the moment. I just go to school across the road, actually. Literally across the road. Yeah, literally uh, across the road. Yeah. Surprised so, I haven't seen you or Cla- uh, you or Cla- Claudia uh, drop them off, dropping the kids yeah. off or picking them up. Yeah. So <laughs> no, you you wouldn't see us uh, all doing that because well, it's it's just a quick in and out of the car. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so they're great. It's soccer season at the moment, so I coach both the boys. We play them in the same team. Um, that's one of the, like the most fun parts of my life at the moment. It's challenging at times getting uh, twelve under nine boys to uh, listen and, and do what you're asking them when there's all these distractions and soccer balls and things around. But um, but I love it, and it goes back to my old teaching days. So yeah, it's really something that I thoroughly enjoy teaching other people things that are going to you know enlighten them and, and bring more joy into their lives. So you, um, if if I asked them if they were here in the room and I asked them what kind of a coach you were, would you either either coach slash father that would be extra extra hard on them and and be extra extra disciplinatory or uh, or are you sort of a bit more lenient with them? No, so I'm uh, I'm not the lenient dad coach. I'm the uh, dad coach who rides his sons harder than everyone else because of a, I have a higher expectation for them. Okay, nice. And if they're play- if I'm the coach in the team, then I expect my expectation for my sons is that they are leading by example as how do I want the whole team to behave and play. And my, my both the boys are fairly athletic, so they're actually quite um, good little soccer players. And Stefan, my youngest, he's played uh, an older age group his whole life. So he's the smallest on the team, but he's like one of the most ferocious, okay. uh, and he's also one of the like better skilled as well. So he's uh, he definitely has some some talent in that space, but it's a matter of whether he wants to pursue it, and then I'll just let them work that out for themselves, and I'll be there to support them as you know as a father can as much as I can. Yeah, yeah. And is there is there a competitiveness between the two? Two years difference, right? Seven and nine. Yeah, seven and nine, but they're very close. So it's about like eighteen months in terms of. Well, it's 18 months apart. Yeah. One's born in January, one's born in October the following year. Okay. So they're, they're very close. Okay. They don't really compete. No, they're like best friends. Nice. They're like the best like brotherly relationship that you could probably have where like the older brother is really like loving and caring and doting and inclusive and nice. just wants to do everything with his little brother. And the little one is trying to take advantage and shortcut everything and just get into trouble. And so, <laughs> the so, more mischievous one. <laughs> it's just a chip off the old block. <laughs> so when they're together, that they, they they have a really great time. Yeah, Claudia and I are, are very, very happy to have such two awesome little kids. And they're, they're, they're are very, uh, when I met them at your place, I think it was late last year, yeah. I was really impressed at such a young age, they were super polite, came up, shook all our hands, introduced themselves. So you and uh, you and Claudia have done a really good job. Uh, thanks, mate. And I, <laughs> doing our best. It's, uh, there's no book. Well, there's probably plenty of books on being a parent, but the thing is, is it's like all relationships. What you put in is, is what you get out. And I think being a father and a parent is one of the most important roles that you play in, in the world that we live in. Yeah. And I, I try to do the best that I can. Yeah, nice. And I, I remember asking some advice of you when I was first having my daughter, Mia, uh, so now we're expecting our second. Me is nearly two. We're two months away from having our second. Congratulations, well. mate! Thank you, thank you. So having a having a little boy. Nice. And it's interesting as a father. Like I don't know about you, but I always sort of imagine myself with a son because you can relate to it. And then when I found out I was having a, a daughter, it was unrelatable, and I did not know what that connection would be like. And obviously, you haven't had a daughter, so you, you don't yeah. know. But that's how I felt. But then 
you know, two years down the track and that bond that you have, I mean, it sounds stupid now that I even thought that before, but that bond you have um, with your with your child is, is second to none. But I'm super excited now having a boy, like now that I'm having a boy, I'm super excited because all those things that I imagined before playing soccer and all that sort of stuff, I mean, you can still do that with your daughter, but it's less likely they should be interested in that. Yeah. Look, from the fathers that I speak to that have got both a boy and a girl or, or two girls or more than girls, they're just different people. They have a different energy and a different just way of doing everything. But that's like men and women. Yeah, we're yeah. just completely different. Uh, and I, th- I think with having, like, so I only know from, from having sons, but I think there's a very special bond between uh, a father and a daughter, which is very, very different to a, to a father and a son. I think it can be a lot deeper um, yeah. because you're the first man she's ever going to love. Yeah. And the, set, and the standard that you set from that point for the rest of her life is going to be very, very important, which I know you're going to do a fantastic job of No that. pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, when I found out, like I still remember finding out that Claudia was pregnant for the first time and just we were so excited and then finding out that we were like, I didn't care whether I was having a boy or a girl. Yeah. But deep down inside, I had my fingers and toes crossed. I was like, just, just give me a, you know, a little boy first. It's please. just more relatable, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Oh, and I think I also just, the life that I'm living now, the soccer coach and doing all those different things and yeah. kids of jiu-jitsu, it's just all that manly stuff that <laughs> I, I did with my dad. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I spent the majority of my teenage years with my father in a car going to soccer training or traveling around New South Wales playing state league soccer. Wow. That was my, that was our life together. Yeah. So we have some really strong bonded time over that period. So that's what you relate to as a son already, I guess. But then when um, we, little Stefan came along, I was in, I was on the cusp of, so I, so I really would like a little girl because it's because you have that complete different scenario, I guess. But yeah. then at the end of the day, mate, healthy and happy. Yeah. That's, that's the key. That's the only important thing, kids. right? Yeah, mate. Yeah. hundred percent. And you can see that excitement when, when you and I both start talking about family. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's probably half the driver for, for me anyway, I'll speak for myself, but that's, that's not half my driver. That's probably 90% of my driver for business. It's so I can have that flexibility and freedom and financial benefit to spend time with the family and go away with the family. And you said coaching, coaching the kids and, and spending time with them or whatnot. I guess like my biggest driver for business is so I can have that freedom with the kids down the track. Huh. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that's why I rig- initially went into business, but I did go into business for the freedom that it can provide to you. And I just saw growing up, yeah, my dad was at work his whole life and I saw him and some of his friends and his friends that were sort of running businesses, they still, they worked as hard as each other. But then all of a sudden, like the guys who ran their own business were playing golf twice, twice a week during the week yeah. and on the weekends. And my dad couldn't play on the weekends. And yeah. I was like, oh, there's something there. I might have been self-employed since I was like 24 years old. So a while. So, while well, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, you go. And I love it because you're sort of the master of your own destiny, but you also need to be very careful. Like not everyone is built to be an entrepreneur. I've just been very fortunate to um, jump into bed with some amazing business partners. Uh, I am not the best entrepreneur. I'm not a CEO. I am a fantastic dreamer, big plans, and that I'm also very good at uh, sort of sales and building all of that marketing, those sort of things. And also as a financial advisor, I'm very good at all my financial advising. So, yeah. Wow. That's what I do for work. I'm, yeah. Whether I'm very good or not, <laughs> someone else can We'll have to ask that. the clients on that. We'll have to I'm ask sure all of my are. clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, not everyone. So I'm a technician in terms of that skill set, but I shouldn't run a company. I'm not a CEO. I've learned that over the years and yeah. I need to be in partnership with people who are very good at that um, 
role. So well done, Raymond. <laughs> well, I think um, look, I think we're in, in a similar page where I've I've been uh, self-employed ever since I left school, pretty much. I think there was about two years there where I just you know worked for other people doing random things, but I've pretty much been my own boss for two years. And and growing up, well, not growing up, but during that time, I always thought the uh, entrepreneurial life was for everyone. And just over the past two years, I, I've definitely become aware of the fact that it has its benefits and I wouldn't change it for the world. And I'm so grateful that I took this path that I did, but it definitely is not for everyone. Some people don't have, I mean, some people don't, don't like the instability. Some people don't, don't like the insecurities of it. Some people don't like, it, it's just, it's just, it is, it can be, it can be very unstable and, and there can be a lot of unknowns that you just, you just don't know about. But as I mentioned growing up, I thought this is a life that everyone wants to live. And now I'm fully aware that's not the case. Yeah, look, if you think back on the last 15 years of, of entrepreneurial life, we've gone through a global financial crisis. We've gone through a global virus crisis. We're just coming out the end of that. Like these are some tumultuous, turbulent, turbulent times that you go through as someone who's self-employed. And in the work that we do, we literally, during the G, uh, global virus crisis, we had a, a business that basically on a Friday let off 80 staff. And wow. then JobKeeper came out. And we rehired them the Wednesday. Wow. Yeah. So, but this is PN, you know, when you're trying to run a business where you have, you know, a couple of million, like tens of millions of dollars of orders coming in, and then they just stop because they're like, hang on a second, there is, the world has ground to a halt. Yeah. Like that kind of, that kind of weight, that kind of pressure, it's only certain humans that can really learn how to live with that and then, yeah. and then thrive. Otherwise the stress is, is just too much. So yeah, I don't think that entrepreneurism is for everybody. Yeah. I think that people should really pursue a career, whether that's entre- being an entrepreneur or being an engineer and working for BHP or whatever, yeah. is up to them. And to find joy and passion in what they do every day. You spend so many hours for so many days, for so many weeks, for so many years at work. Yeah. You really need to be getting yeah, a lot of positivity out of what, what you do. But everyone should have some sort of side hustle or have an understanding of how to invest or manage themselves and their finances so that they can create financial security and time freedom for themselves. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I'm, I'm totally aligned with, with that. I wanted to touch on today, it's this new terminology that is getting thrown around quite well. I, should, I shouldn't say new because it's been around for a long time, but we are hearing it a lot now given the current climate in Australia, but also around the world. I wanted to touch on stagflation yep. and, and what it is, let's touch on what it is first and then let's let's sort of start that conversation there. So it's, it's a basically a, a made-up term that combines inflation with stagnation. So uh, inflation is when prices of goods and services are going up and stagnation is when uh, the prices of goods and services are stagnant or going down. And the way that the global economy is built is that we need to have inflation every year because as inflation, uh, as everything gets a little bit more expensive next year, the debt that you had yesterday costs you less to pay back because now you've got more dollars in the future to, to pay that. So the whole world is built on this inflationary economic system. Yeah. Capitalism. Yeah. That's one of the key drivers. So central banks around the world their mandate is to keep inflation or the consumer price index, which which is inflation. The consumer price index is a basket of goods and services that they put together that then they average out what, what is the cost of those going up or down? And that's how they get the inflation. And that's how they get inflation. Sure. So their mandate is to keep it somewhere between two and 3%. Sure. And globally we've seen inflation like it's in some countries it's above 10. 
Yeah, in the US, it's about eight. In Australia, it's about five and a half, heading very closely to six. Yep. And inflation is going to continue to increase until people stop spending money. Yeah. Yep. And what's driving all of that is cost of goods going up, coming out of China or coming out of the whole world, and also uh, rising wages also globally. And the thing with stagflation is for stagflation to come into play, you need to have inflation going up, basically being out of control interest rates rising at the same time to try and combat inflation, but then also unemployment rising. If you don't have that unemployment rising, if you have full employment and you have wages growth, which keeps up with the interest rate increases, well, then that's just going to continue to feed the machine Yeah. in terms of everyone's employed, everyone has money, they're going to continue to buy the things that are more expensive. So therefore they have to continue to raise rates. Sure. But the issue that central banks also have is that ever since they've started to raise interest rates, what they call as your free rate of return in terms of your cash means that investments or businesses, future cash flow is now less likely because- What do you mean by future cash flow is, is less likely? So because all of their debt is now more expensive. Okay. All of their wages grow. Well, their wages is going to go up. Yeah. Yep. So the cost of them doing business is going to go up. Sure. And therefore, all of their customers are going to have less money to spend with them. So their future profits, there should be less. Yeah. That's the, the theory behind, that's how the economic model theory is supposed to work. In theory. In theory, yeah. <laughs> in the last two decades, the economic theories, the, the, some of the central bankers are just making it up as they go, <laughs> quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, all these things. Why don't we touch on that? Yeah, what is, that, what, what do you, why don't you share for the listeners quantitative, quantitative easing and what that is and how that affects, affects the economy? Okay. So quantitative easing is where you have uh, a central bank or a government basically issuing bonds, so investments. It's basically saying it's providing an asset out and then it's buying its own asset. Okay. So on the balance sheet, it's creating money, which is a liability, and then it's buying that money as an asset. Okay. So it's literally shaking the money tree. Okay. It's creating its own money. Okay. And then in some countries, they're buying real world assets like equities or ETFs and, and other various things. And other times they're just buying the, the direct bonds. Okay. Yep, with the view that they'll pay that back to themselves in the future. Yeah. Okay. So that's quantitative easing. And have we had that? We've had that since all through the GFC yep. and then all through the global virus crisis. So past two years, Australia's, Australia yeah, has been- so the last, the We've had so over the last 15 years. So okay. global, vi- a global financial crisis was in 2008. Yeah, yeah. So since that, we've had QE. Okay. Amazing. It's now 2023. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. I, so I understand when you say they're just making it up as they go. Sometimes it's well, just they're going to go rogue. They're going rogue. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you think of, um, so asset prices. Asset prices are driven by cash flow. Yeah, you can only afford to pay for an asset if you have the money. Yeah. Globally, the world, central banks and governments have created so much debt that they've created since, like in the last three years, we've created the entire amount of debt in the whole world in the last three years. So we've doubled it in the last three years. Crazy when you think of it like that. eh? Asset prices have have doubled over that sort of period of of time as well because the debt is funding all of those things. Yeah. It's it's very cheap. Yeah. Debts. You know, there's countries still that have negative interest rates. So if you have money in the bank, you lose money. Crazy. Yeah. But that's not staying, that's not going to be here for much longer. Yeah. Um, rates are going up globally. Yeah. yeah. So QE, so quantitative tightening is basically the unwinding of quantitative easing. Okay. Easing. Yeah. So it's the basically paying back of that debt to itself. Sure. 
Sure, sure. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for thanks for um, clarifying that. I know we digressed a bit from the stagnation. I just I know you mentioned it, so I thought it'd be imp- important to sort of touch on it. Look, having a, a good understanding of how an economy works and economics is really vital for, for everybody, so yeah. that you just have an understanding of how do you vote, how do you do all these different things, because the people who are in charge of the countries and their policies, it's important to have an understanding of that, because you know all of that debt that we've created. In the last since the global financial crisis, we were debt free. So yeah. Australia was debt free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have got so much debt from that point till now. You know, your grandchildren would be paying that debt off. Yeah. Our government has no more assets to sell. The yeah. last big asset they sold was Telstra, and then they paid out all their debt. So we went into the global financial crisis looking sweet. Yeah. yeah. The Our global virus. Uh, no, global financial. I'm talking okay, about. Okay, okay, So yeah, we, we've been in a in a debt fueled growth phase back since sort of 2008 right and now they're trying to look at unwinding that because they're trying to get inflation because they're trying to get now inflation under control yeah okay and why don't we touch on i know last time stagflation happened was in correct me if i'm wrong 1970 why don't we touch on what well we know what happened then because it's similar to what we're potentially heading towards now but but who are the who are the biggest beneficiaries or, or or who benefits from that who 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 doesn't benefit from that so in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, we had uh, interest rates uh, going up. And when the government at the time said this is the recession that we had to have. Yeah, yeah, and I then, remember that. And then they said, oh, well, hang on a second, we're going to get off the gold standard. And this, so all of these things were happening when, so before we got, so let me go back. Yeah. So before we got off the gold standard, so what that meant is a country could only issue Australian debt, so Australian-backed bonds, if they had gold to back it up. Yep. So you had a tangible asset, whether you think gold's an asset or not. Yeah, I'm not gonna, we digress. That's when I'm going to open that can of worms. We need to have Sam on here to duke that out. <laughs> um, so whether you'd say gold's an asset or not, every central bank had that gold or every country had that gold. And they basically said, all right, we have got a million dollars worth of gold. Here's a million dollars worth of debt. And we're going to pay you an interest rate on that, but it's backed by an asset. Sure. First, the US government went off the gold standard. Then Australia went off the gold standard, and now currency is just basically it's confidence. There's yeah. no tangible asset which is behind that, other than well, the, the other tangible assets are is the economies themselves in terms of the taxpayer base and the income that the country generates through taxes. Yeah, but it's really, I mean, so so, so what you're saying there is that the currency itself it, it doesn't have any any tangible asset to to base it off. It's more because tomorrow they could print, or they've already done that, right? They've printed. You said you said more debt in the last three years than the past forever. Forever. So, so that's when you sort of say there's no, there's nothing there tangible to to relate the amount of the, the currency. Correct. And look, and people think countries don't go bankrupt. Well, they do. Yeah, South American countries have gone bankrupt. So, a couple, a few of them have gone bankrupt a couple of times. And what that means is just simply the country just says, look, sorry guys, all this debt that we currently had, we're wiping it out. This particular currency is no longer in use anymore, and we're going to this new one. And then they start again. Madness. And they wipe out that global debt. Yeah, so that, that those things can happen. Yeah, so ha- going back, having an understanding of economics and how all that works, there's a great video on YouTube by Ray Dalio called How the Economy Works. Ray Dalio, How the Economy Works. I yeah. remember that. That uh, I, I strongly recommend spending 30 minutes and watching that the first time and then sitting down and watching it again. It's really? very insightful. Yeah, okay. it, it's pretty. if you want just the basics of how everything works, it's it's really good. I'm writing it down. Lucky I got my notepad here. I was um I, I only ever do podcasts to learn for myself, not for other people anyway. So that's why I've got my notepad here. So when the guests <laughs> come on, I can ask the questions that I want to know about. So, so he runs one of the biggest, most successful hedge funds in the world, Bridgewater Capital. Yeah. yeah. So he's a very successful investor and, and person. And now at the sort of twilight of his life, he's putting a lot of time 
back into providing these educational tools and resources for the everyday person to try and just have that sort of higher level of financial literacy. Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess what we're seeing, and we'll touch, we'll touch a bit on, I guess, um, who are the beneficiaries of stagflation and whatnot shortly, but you, you touched on the reason why interest rates are going up so people have access to less money, right? We're not seeing, I'm, I'm going to talk it personally, what we're seeing at the Investors Agency, interest rates have gone up 0.85%. Yep. Well, they're at 0.85% now. They've gone up, um, uh, they went up 0. 0.75, 0.75. 0.75%, my apologies. We have not seen a slowdown in buyers getting into the investment market yet. I suspect buyers are rushing in to get in before they get re-rated with the increase in interest rates. That's my suspicion. But the interest rate increases we've seen yet, if our experience is anything to go by, we're not going to see we're not going to see a slowdown in spending. It's going to have to go a bit further before people stop, you know, spending above their means. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Australians have hundreds of millions of dollars of capital sitting in offset accounts. Yeah, because as interest rates have been falling from two thousand and eight highs all the way down to basically point one five percent. A lot of homeowners have just continued to pay the same home loan repayment that they were paying back in 2007. Yeah. So they've been absolutely hammering their home loan down. So that whole, those Australians, they've still got plenty of money. They've still got plenty of cash flow. You're right. I've seen the LVR, the total LVR, don't quote me, but you, you might actually know it, but I've seen the total LVR in Australia is, is, is sitting, for, for Australian property, is sitting like at like 30% or 40% or something like that. Yeah, so you've got to understand how the Australian property market is structured. So it's basically there's three broad areas of the Australian property market. You have my parents, your parents, my grandmother, who own their homes and their investment properties outright. Yep, they've got yeah. no debt. They own them. They're living on the income. That's how they're living their lives. Yeah. Then you have our generation who've got their family home that they're paying off their mortgage and they've got one or two, like an investment property or whatever that they've got some debt on as well that they're then managing. Yeah. Um, then you have the renters. Yeah. But they're, they're broadly divided into three equal sort of areas. And at the moment, you have a massive amount of people requiring rental property and there's a huge shortage, like Australia-wide. Yeah. You know this is as, better than I do. Yeah. But that's why the demand, like in some areas, just in Manly here, like rents have gone up 15 20% in 12 months. Yeah. And there are areas all over um, Australia that that is happening. So whilst you can still achieve these fantastic yields in investment property, that's where I think people will continue to flood, particularly as cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrency been absolutely hammered. 70%. The share right. market. Well, Bitcoin's down 70. Some stuff's down, yeah, 99.9%. Yeah. So all your altcoins and other different things. We'll do another podcast on that as well. So, <laughs> and the share market's down as well. You know, so last week in the, uh, the ASX was down like, like 6.5% for the week. It's the worst week that it's ever had since back through the global virus crisis, back when that was sort of hitting. So, okay. you know, all markets are really trying to readjust to this um, high inflation economic environment that we're in with rising interest rates. And everyone's trying to estimate, well, how high are rates going to go? What's going to be our free rate of return in terms of our cash flow? What's that number going to be yeah. six months from now, 12 months from now, two years from now? And which companies, which businesses are going to be most heavily impacted by that? Do you have an opinion on that, on, on in terms of interest rate? I know crystal ball stuff, so no one take it gospel. But but do you have an? Uh, what's your opinion on, on where you think? If I knew the answer to that, I would be a very very wealthy man. <laughs> Look, the RBA has come out and basically said that normalised interest rates from them is going to be somewhere around two and a half to three and a half percent, which means interest rates for the consumer is going to be somewhere between sort of four and a half and six. Yep. Yep. Depending on which bank you're with, so on various things. Yep. But how quickly they get there and when they get there is going to be really dependent upon 
global economy, the supply chain issues that we're currently having, what's happening in Europe at the moment, energy costs, um, so on and so forth. And then also just how robust the Australian economy is just in and of itself. Yeah. And, and whether Aussies do actual, actually tighten up their belt buckle and stop spending. If we just continue to spend, rates will just continue to go up. If you think back to, um, I keep going back to 2008, but interest rates were rising all the way into when the global financial crisis happened. So we had an interest rate rise in August, I think it was, and the global financial crisis happened in September, October. Okay. So we had rising interest rates that entire year. Yeah. And then we had an actual financial meltdown, global financial meltdown. Yeah. Um, we don't want to go back, uh, back there. So they're going to be cautious as to how, they, how quickly they raise rates. Have we seen inflation rates start to slow down in the rest of the world? No, I know in Australia we haven't. I think there's still a few percent to go. But. So inflation is a really slow thing to, to um, try and mitigate, to slow down. And the reason for that is because as interest rates rise, it's not an initial impact straight away. So you'll see it in 90 days' time. Yeah, yeah. So if you raise interest rates today, you'll see that impact on inflation and spending three months from now. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an instantaneous thing because people still have ready cash flow now and the tightening doesn't really happen. So that's why when – but now with interest rate – with inflation, sorry – rampantly out of control, that's why you're seeing these big, you know, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.75, 1% interest rate rises around the world. Yeah. So, so I mean, I know, and I know you touched on it as well, some of the rest of the world sitting at above 10%, slightly more, America sitting at 8%. When are those figures going to be released again in terms of what the, what the inflation rate is? So, so each country um, reports it at different times. Yeah. You, typically it comes out monthly yeah. um, with most uh, Western world countries, yeah. but then all reserve banks meet at different times as well. So in Australia, the Reserve Bank meets 11 times a year, yeah. so it doesn't meet in January, and on the first Tuesday every month, they come out and let us know what, what's going to happen. So they've got all the information, they make a decision, and then they go forward from there. Yeah. The US, the Fed only meets every six weeks. Yeah, yeah okay, so interesting. And when was the last time the US announced just inflation last rates? Last, just last week. Okay. And rates went up. Okay, yeah. cool. So to, to try and get this there, to try and get it. Sorry, not interest rates, inflation rates. So inflation numbers come out every month. Okay. So typically in the Western world, inflation numbers come out every month. Yeah. But then you, they break it down into... And they're not just looking at just inflation. They're also looking at unemployment. Yeah. So in Australia, unemployment's like 3.8%. Yeah. Like if you Super want low. a job, you can get a job. Yeah. If, if you want you three jobs, job, you can get three jobs right now. <laughs> if you have a job and you want a pay rise, you can get it. Yeah. Like, um, 100%. Yeah. There's, there's, yeah. The, the, the businesses are going bust at the moment because they can't find staff, not because they can't find work, which is the real unfortunate thing. And then that's also sector specific. Like if you think of hospitality um, and entertainment, a lot of the people that work in those industries are incoming students. We've had no immigration for three years. We've had no foreign students come in for three years. We still don't have any people coming into Australia. So in those sectors, you have a chronic shortage of, of workers where people literally cannot open restaurants to full capacity because... They don't have the staff. Yeah, my uh, my sister in law has a couple of restaurants, and, and they've they've since they've opened back up. Since life's gone back to normal, they've just been doing uh, breakfast and dinner, breakfast and lunch. They're not doing dinner because they can't find the staff. Yeah. So dinner's their biggest trade. They can't do it. Uh, I, I think that's going to change as well. There's a lot of you know, younger Australians who made a lot of money in in crypto, and that's gone. Now. Yeah. So either that capital, maybe they still have some of that back, but all the yield farming and the other ways that they were generating revenue from the investments that they had, all that stuff is dried up now. Or yeah, it's 
we're pretty much gone. So yeah. a lot of those people are still going to have to look at other ways to then start generating revenue. So there should be some more people coming in and hopefully immigration starts again soon. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it will. I mean, history tells us the Australian government generally ramps up immigration to, to I guess, stimulate, that, stimulate the economy. So I think as life goes back to normal, they've already made a few announcements that they will be sort of ramping that up. I know you're an investing man. So what do you, if you were an investing man, what are your, what are your thoughts with, with where would you be, where would you be investing over the next sort of um, one, two, three year, or let's just say next 12 months? Yep. Um, so the conversations that I've been having with clients at the moment is really to keep their powder dry. So I think there's going to be some, like, I think there's going to be a sale that goes on. And so when most people go to a Westfields and there's sales, like, yes, I'm going to get my 50% off my sneakers. I'm like, great. And they buy as many sneakers <laughs> as they can. Um, with investing, people don't have that same mentality. They're like, oh, things are off 50%. Not, oh, it's a sale. And I'm buying Woolworths future cash flows at a 50% discount. They're what they were six months ago. Yeah. Because the fear is just in them because everywhere. So we're looking at that. For businesses that are looking to expand, we're looking at assessing other small businesses that we, uh, people can purchase to expand. Okay. Um, because... Businesses are one of the best investments that you can make um, as long as they they run themselves and you can or and or you can run them. Yeah. And you know there are some businesses out there that you can buy at a one for one, one for one. So it turns over a hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue and you can buy it for a hundred thousand dollars. So you get all your money back in in the first year. Yeah. There, are, I was speaking with a mate that we we're looking at something and he was looking at buying a business for about thirty five thousand dollars, all equipment, all client lists, everything, and it generates a hundred and thirty thousand dollars worth of revenue. Mate, wow. You get all your money back in you know, 45 days. 100% crazy. So there, there are little things like that that we're, we're looking at. Yeah. But in terms of financial markets and those types of things, we are keeping our powder dry. Uh, and we're also looking for property um, opportunities because there are less people out there looking to buy. And then when that sort of happens, vendors or people that are looking to sell are typically more interested in, in the terms and conditions that we like to negotiate when we buy. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Look, I think in terms of property... Uh, and that's the only thing I'll speak about because I'm not I'm not experienced or qualified enough to speak about other other investment classes. But in terms of property, I, I think the next six months in Sydney will be presenting itself with some ex- very very good opportunity. I think Melbourne as well will be presenting itself with some good opportunity. We've seen a slight slowdown in Brisbane. We haven't seen a slowdown in in Perth and Adelaide yet. We we literally we are still missing out on properties left, right, and centre. Interesting. Perth has been so low for so long. Yeah, that that, that was a really a market that has had a lot of pent up you know demand. You know, pent up volume. You know, nothing sort of happening, and then now it it sort of it, it looks like it's really going to go off. Yeah. Well, even um even if you're as an investor, Perth at the moment is, is, is where you can put your money to get the highest yields for a capital city. So uh, so I think that's one of the things that people are looking at. Vacancy rates across the country, like you said, are super, super low. So I don't think opportunities, there's not going to be any discount buying in the other states at this stage. I don't, and I don't think there will be because the debt levels aren't so high. But when you talk about Sydney and Melbourne, debt levels are so high as interest rates go up, people start panicking a bit more. I think Sydney, as I mentioned, will, there will be some good buying opportunity. When I say good, maybe 15% off what it was five months ago, if your property market property's gone up 100, 150%, it's largely irrelevant. But, you know, if you can buy 15% discount on a property, I think it's a great time to get in. Yeah, I, I find that that's so interesting. You know, everyone's been living in Australia for the last five years and has seen what's happened to the property values everywhere. And then, you know, pretty much everything's gone up, whether it's 50%, 80%, 100%, 150%, everything has gone up in the last five years. You know? Yeah. And then now that they've come off, 
15% or whatever that is, 10%, you know, everyone's like, oh, my property wants the news, news people. The average Australian <laughs> actually doesn't care. Yeah. He's just living in his house yeah. or they are just living in their house. But uh, it's the media hype around it all. Uh, and most people didn't buy five months ago and then they're selling now. Yeah. So they're holding that asset. So. Exactly. It's oh, largely hyperbole. Yeah. Look, I think we unpacked a lot today. I think we've um, added a ton of value. I know there's something that you guys are releasing soon, which the listeners could potentially gain a lot of value on. Do you want to share with the listeners what that is? Yeah. So winding back to being able to deliver, I guess, education to increase financial literacy for millennials and under, we're launching this business called Purple Panda. And it's all about helping people live their limitless. And the way that we do that is through education, motivation, and organization. So we've built a proprietary sort of wealth tracker, which can pull in all of your financial data, and you can run all your budgets, your P&L on your balance sheet, and your cash flow statement, all within our software. And it can report back to you on how you're going. So if you set certain goals that I want to grow my wealth to X amount, well, then it will report back to you whether you're on track or not on track to do that. And we've also set up a goals tracker. So you'll be able to set long-term goals, short-term goals, and then they all fit in together. So we have a philosophy around goal setting. So 10-year goal, three years, 12 months, 12 weeks, and then each day. Do one thing each day that moves you towards your 10-year goal and you'll, you'll get there. And do, is, do you guys work with them to create those goals or is this more of a, 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 a model where someone can go on themselves and put in their own goals? Yeah, so it's a model where, uh, so it's all online and they'll be able to do that themselves, but okay. there'll also be coached sessions where there'll be like one to many. So it'll be like a Zoom call, I guess, where I get on and or some of the other guys that are in the faculty will get on and talk about how to set goals and the importance of setting values-based goals and even how to identify what your values are. Yeah. And then work them through a process so that they can then come up with what their goals are and then go and get after it. So that's Purple Panda. That's um, that's been launching in the next say six weeks or so. so nice. Yeah. And is that for is that for essentially millennials? Anybody, or is it more for the the avatar that you were touching on? Yeah. So at again, the it's for the emerging wealthy. It's for any anyone and everyone can can utilize it. Yeah. We just think that it's going to be more focused towards that younger generation because they're more self driven and they don't really have really complex financial planning requirements. Yeah. So they'll be able to learn the basics and then pretty much implement it themselves. Or if they need some specific advice, then there are financial advisors attached to Purple Panda that can then give them that advice. But but it's 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 very cost effective because all the data, all the information, all the all that stuff is already done. So the advisor can just come in and say, "Okay, so you want to achieve this? Great. I think you should do X, Y, Z, and then deliver the the advice that way, and not have to do all the data collection and analysis. Our software tool will do all of that for them." Nice. Yeah, I think a lot of the listeners will gain a lot of value from that. So, so if you guys are looking for a one spot where you can put in all your um, your assets, liabilities, and and what your goals are and what you're working towards, this um this software sounds like it'll definitely help you get towards those goals. Yeah, it'll track everything, and it also feeds through to an accounting firm. So yeah. part of the subscription every year means that your personal tax return will get done as well. Okay. So, yeah, Perfect. I think it's going to be a great tool for, for people to use. 100%. I can see the value there, mate. Well, look, thanks for, thanks for coming on. As we, as we wrap things up, for, for, those, for those guys listening, do you have any, I guess, words of wisdom or advice for the investors out there? I, I, know, I know sort of the media always has to, is always looking to sell that next article, but, yeah. but what, what would you sort of one piece of advice be for those looking to get into any investment market at the yeah, moment? So, so regardless of um, what's happening in any financial market that you're looking to buy into, investing fundamentals don't change. So what's the value of the asset that you're purchasing? What do you think that value is going to be in the future? And what's the free cash flow? So what cash flow is this particular investment generating after all of, this, all of the expenses? Whether you're looking at a business, whether you're looking at a, 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 oh, sorry, 
a business to buy, whether you're looking at a, an ASX li- or a listed company that you yeah. know just invested a small amount of shares, or whether you're looking at a property, those fundamentals are the same. Yeah. For those more sophisticated investors, I'd be looking at buying properties that you can add significant value to in the future, like either renovation, subdivision, these types of deals, or very, very strong cash flow businesses. Because as interest rates continue to rise, if rents don't rise at the same time, you're going to have a good buffer there to be able to fund that investment going forward. Yeah. And just with inflation coming into the world, what that means is that asset prices are going to go up in value. That's what inflation is. Yeah. So growth assets are going to go up in value. Yes, some of the publicly listed businesses are having some repricing that's happening at the moment, but all other assets are going up. That's what inflation is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent is. If you want to bet, if you want to hedge your bets against inflation, if you can put your money in assets, then that's the safest bet, right? Correct. Growth assets. Yeah. Mate, well, thanks for coming on. I'm sure the listeners gained a lot of value. Hopefully you enjoyed yourself. Thanks, buddy. I love it. Would love to. I'd love to have you, have you on again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.